Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. A quick little ears warning. Though we are not explicit in any way, there is an inevitable transactional adult relationship scenario that you might want to preview before letting little ears hear this episode. And now on with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. Sarah Bernhardt began life as an unwanted child of a courtesan. And through hard work, sheer luck, shocking eccentricity, and her indomitable spirit, transformed herself into the first A-list international celebrity the world had ever seen. The end. Let's talk about Sarah Bernhardt. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1862, Juliet Ward Howe's poem, The Battle Hymn of the Republic, was first published. Louis Pasteur completed his first successful test of what would become known as pasteurization. The current Westminster Bridge over the River Thames opened. Charles Dodson first told his tale, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, and young Alice Liddell asked him to write it out for her. The bowling ball, then made of wood, was first invented, although the game predates this invention by about 5,000 years. The U.S. Civil War was in full swing. Edith Wharton, Gustav Klimt, and Ida B. Wells Barnett were all born. Henry David Thoreau and former U.S. presidents John Tyler and Martin Van Buren died. And in 1862, Sarah Bernhardt made her professional acting debut. Henriette Rosine Bernard was born in the Kingdom of France on a vast assortment of dates between 1841 and 1847. Imagine, if you will, a dartboard with the darts hitting random places. Such is the data, most flowing from her own mouth. The common consensus seems to be somewhere in the middle, late October of 1844. So. We are going to base any age-related comments on that date. Even her name is often listed in various different ways. She, as well as other members of her family, really played loose with silly things like facts. She was the eldest living daughter of the five that were born to her mother, Judith Bernard, known professionally, more on that later, as Julie or Yule Van Hard and another series of question marks instead of a papa. <laughs> it could have been one of several people. Often the fatherhood is attributed to a naval officer, sometimes a Parisian law student, sometimes a man who Sarah later thought was her uncle. Not sure. Sarah Bernhardt did write her autobiography, but it's just plain useless when it comes to facts that we feel like we can tell you as facts. So let's just say that Sarah was good at embroidery. <laughs> she had a skill. She was actually known later in life as une monteuse sincère, which is like a serious liar. <laughs> her yeah. father does make appearances in her life. However, he's never named and there's no actual validation that that is the guy. It's kind of fun, actually. At first, I was frustrated, but then I got into it, and I was like, oh, here's another guy. Could be him. It was a good mindset for this entire story, actually. <laughs> yes. 
So Mama came from Amsterdam, where she was one of a large family of mostly daughters. And when, in her early teens, her mother died and her father immediately remarried, she and her younger sister, Rosine, who were probably 13 and 14 years old, took off into the world to seek their fortunes. Within a year or so, we can read of Yule giving birth to a pair of twin daughters who died within days of their birth. Mama was maybe only 15. Yule went to Paris, where she was a seamstress by day and by night joined the ranks of the demi-monde, professional girlfriends. Sugar baby? I don't know what to call her. <laughs> Soon her sister Rosine joined her, and the two of them were just beautiful and ladylike and amusing and held a salon which attracted men of rank and distinction. The sisters never lacked for rich, quote, protectors. Incidentally, their older sister came to town too and immediately made herself a respectable upper middle class marriage. You know what this reminds me of? Just the attitude they had toward Henriette, which is that sister's name. Do you remember, was it the Adams family or the Munsters, where they had an a beautiful cousin of some oh. kind? <laughs> yes. Where they regarded her as the one to be pitied? Right, exactly. exactly. Like the weird is the normal and the normal is the weird. Like Henriette was definitely the odd man out. She lived this suburban Parisian life. Back at the salon... The sisters entertained men like bankers, famous writers, the composer Rossini, courtiers at the court of King Louis-Philippe, and in fact, the future emperor's half-brother, the Duke de Morny, known as the most powerful man in France. Yes, he was in with both the restored monarchy and the future emperor Napoleon, his half-brother. The ladies, shall we say, are doing okay. But at the age of 16, at the height of her incipient popularity, <sighs> Yule had a situation. Her situation was a baby, and that baby was Sarah. And she's only about 16 at the time. And who was the father? Well, look around. Hmm. <laughs> To say this child was inconvenient to a mother who was pulling herself up in some level of society by her fingernails is really, really saying something. The father of note, the father of record, was listed as Edouard Bernard, and that's Mama's brother's name, which leads me to believe that that was a convenient name to put down for pure fictional purposes. Sarah's original birth certificate is going to be destroyed in a fire in the distant future, so we don't have anything written down. Her baptismal certificate, however, has Edouard Bernard written on it. So I think he was there for her baptism and wrote his name. I think that's actually the brother. But again, there's still a huge question mark over it. Well, that's yeah, but in those days before ID, anyone can say their name's Edouard Bernard. True. At, and at the no. time he was there, the birth certificate was still in existence. So if there had been any cross-checking, they wanted to have the same name. It could have right. just been any random dude, bro. Pierre Jones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Childcare was immediately and firmly outsourced. From about the age of three, Sarah was sent to live with a family in a village in Brittany, which is 
300 miles away to the left. Let me get my directions to the west. (laughs) This was the first family that Sarah knew. It was her nurse slash governess slash caretaker and her husband. And the life that Sarah had there was kind of country life. And the first language that Sarah learned wasn't French. It was Breton. It was a Celtic language. It's more like Cornish or Scottish than traditional French. But she was just a country kid who knew nothing about her mother's life except very, very few appearances. Later, Sarah told a series of dramatic stories about her fine, beautiful mama who had come to her rescue one day when she fell into a fire and moved her so they'd be close and realized what a mistake she'd made to send her so far away. Yeah, okay, that's probably not what happened. She just was sent away because she was in the way of progress in the professional girlfriend career trajectory. (laughs) I just kind of put it as her mama's well-appointed salon workplace. Yes. Also in the possible fiction category, she tells a story of her nurse's husband dying, the nurse remarrying someone who was an apartment manager in Paris, and without her mother's knowledge, they moved to Paris. The nurse claimed that she didn't know how to get a hold of Yule, so that's why they were apart for so long, even though Sarah was right by her mother. Maybe? And that's why. She lost the paper with the contact information on it, supposedly. I changed phones. Your number didn't transfer. So hooray, one day it was all solved. A fancy lady in a fancy carriage arrives into the courtyard, is horrified at Sarah's lowly circumstances, promises to take her away from all this tomorrow. But Sarah is not having any of that. She wants to go with the fancy lady. So she either throws herself out of a window or throws herself in front of the carriage and is seriously injured, scooped up and brought to the loving, caring, nurturing arms of her mother. Or else, as the straight history version says, her mother decided that the trip to Brittany, which takes days is just too long for those times she gets an impulse to nip over and say hello to her child. So she herself got them that little place. Right. The end. I mean, that's, <laughs> I know that's not as good of a story and I'm sorry about that. And also for some reason, I don't know how it happened. Perhaps young Sarah had actually broken her arm in two places and broken her kneecap. And then the rest emerged from that situation. You know how like when you encounter a guy at the store and you're like, oh, man, what happened? And he goes, a a bear emerged while I was camping on the top (laughs) of a mountain and I got on my helicopter and blah, blah, blah. When in truth, he like tripped in the bathroom. Right. (laughs) It's kind of like the short version of that. Yeah. One time I was weeding and I almost grabbed a snake and ran into the garage. But the story I told was that I was attacked by a very large snake and ran into the garage and broke my foot. (laughs) I couldn't even like open the door when people were coming. Mom got bit by a rattlesnake. It was just it happened so fast that the story just got bigger and bigger. See, it's a natural process. We shouldn't read too much into Sarah's embroidery. That's right. She told versions of this story her whole life. Also, her papa entered in. Her papa cared a lot, but was always traveling. He was in China. He was here. He was there. Mama was 
busy. And what I see in all these stories is just creative rationalization from an extraordinarily unwanted child, which really breaks my heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This whole story and her attitude about it reminds me of a book that I once read at the Edgemore Public Library as a child <laughs> called The Great Gilly Hopkins. And I'm sure a lot of you have read it. it. It must have won several awards. I always haunted that shelf. And it's the story of a foster child who romanticizes her own distant, uncaring, hippie, commune living mother. And I think that book is why I understood Sarah as a child a little, despite having had a childhood that was nothing like that myself. Mm -hmm. But that book, man, that book really got to me. And I think as a child, it really opened my eyes to the fact that not all children have a good childhood. I, You know, it seems like a silly thing to have to learn, but if you don't know, you don't know. And mm -hmm. poor old Sarah had been dumped in the deep end. Yes, that's a good way to put it. When Sarah was about seven, for some reason, the way it goes in legend is that her mother realized that she didn't know how to read or write. More like her mother realized that she had this not cute little child running around the house, a louder, older, very dramatic kid that she needed to get out of her place of business. But Sarah was taken off to Madame Frizard's boarding school. Now, Sarah did not pitch a fit about going. She was very excited for the adventure. So it's moving day for Sarah. She's moving into a Madame Frizzard's. The whole family goes out, the family being Rosine and Yule and any hangers-on that happen to be around. One of whom may or may not have been her actual papa. That's the thing. Like, he could have been there the whole time. Yeah. Somebody had to pay the fees. Mm. I know. Yule did turn Sarah over with strict instructions to use this special recipe lotion on her every day. And here's some extra money to have the sheets changed weekly and her hair must be brushed a hundred times a day, which probably didn't happen, but she probably felt better about asking for it. And then it was time for Mama to leave. She and her entourage went off to a nightclub or a dinner party, leaving Sarah, quote, to be dragged into the cage in which I was to become imprisoned. <laughs> mm. Well, she learned mathematics, reading, embroidery of the real <laughs> actual needle and thread sort, manners. But still, she was subject, and I can totally get this, to these violent fits of temper that not only made her physically sick, but made her act out. She would just run and kick and just bite other girls, simmering rage. I get it. I do get it. She was sent often to solitary confinement or asked to put her hands in front of her, in which the teacher would hit her hands with a ruler. Oftentimes, actresses from Paris's famous Comédie Française came by to the school to either do question and answer sessions or little performances and introduce all the girls to theater. Sarah loved that. So when she was cast as Queen of the Fairies in the school play, it was a huge deal. So Yule and Rosine and Rosine's fella, the Duke de Morny, whom at some points was also Yule's fella. He was an equal opportunity boyfriend. <laughs> now, that, again, that is the half brother of Napoleon III. Right. They all showed up for this play. Sarah 
for the first time in her life, was gripped by stage fright when she saw them. And the only thing she could do was run off stage in tears. And her mother followed her up to her room and not to give her some words of encouragement, but to say, and to think, this is a child of mine. Setting Sarah up for stage fright that would last for the rest of her life. Here's something sort of bad, too. Very bad. Mama had had a new baby, a baby that she openly liked. And uh, her name was Jean. And honestly, it broke Sarah's heart. It wasn't just that Mama was like a sucky mother in general, which she was. But the fact that she was only really a sucky mother to Sarah herself Mm -hmm. and not to Jean for some reason. So Sarah started to internalize like, oh, it's me that's the problem and not my mother. Suddenly, without warning, she was informed that upon the instructions of her papa, she was to be removed from school and sent instead to a convent, the fashionable Grand Champ Convent School in the town of Versailles. Did she ever meet this father? Sifting the stories for nuggets of truth is like digging through a cat box. I have no idea. Some handsome man with a waxed mustachio once came to see her or didn't or came once or came a lot. I don't know. I don't know. Somebody was paying these school bills. Somebody was listened to as the voice of authority. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like, oh, yeah. I- and Sarah was not happy about this at all. She had just kind of gotten settled in there. So she threw one of those, I don't want to call it a temper tantrum because I know she was motivated by how she was feeling. And this was the only way that she could react. But she just lashed out. It was so violent that she was in bed, quote, with a fever for days afterwards. And then she was sent out to the suburbs to Aunt Henriette's house for further convalescing. I will say that Aunt Henriette never stopped nitpicking Sarah. I think she might have seen in Sarah the behavior of her own disreputable sister, I guess, from her viewpoint, and she was trying to stamp it out. But she did have a nice, kind, gentle uncle, and she also was able to hang out in the outdoors with her cousins and fish and hang out by the creek and just have a rest cure. Just everyone would stop getting at her for a little while. I wonder if she knew she was going to land there if she did something like a temper tantrum like that. I don't know. I don't know that at nine she was sophisticated enough to, I don't know. Kids learn that very, very early. You know, you do, you drop the thing. Mom picks it up. It's so fun. Let's drop the thing. Well, and- I think she was just reacting out of pure emotion, just absolute rage at being hauled out of somewhere into right. another new situation where she wasn't comfortable is what I think. One day while she was playing with her cousin, she took a dare and jumped over a ditch and broke her wrist. As she was being carried inside in a lot of pain and screaming, she's still saying, I would do it again. Come, mem. All my life, I will always do what I want. She claims that at that very moment, she decided that con mem, which means in spite of or nevertheless or all the same or even sometimes whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That would be her life motto. She says she picked it out at nine, which I wouldn't doubt that. I have a very strongly held belief that I vividly remember getting at seven. Not oh. to go into too much detail, but yeah. Oh. I In uh, looking into this, now my French is really rusty, so I tried to brush things up. Um, I found another phrase that I would attribute to Sarah, and that would be a bendy donk, which means like, are you kidding me? 
<laughs> I think that's a great motto for her life from where I'm sitting. But for her, it was Colmem. Well, so her aunt and uncle got her school supplies together and gave her some gifts and held a farewell dinner for her. And the story goes that her mama and papa delivered her together to her new school at Versailles and that her papa said to her, if you are good, I will come get you in four years. And that's the last time she ever saw him because he died. Was this actually her father? Was it a front for the nuns at Notre Dame de Grandchamp? Was it a man hauled off the street to play the part of papa? In the ongoing farce, let's take this child to school? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that the Duke de Moray got her in. His name meant a lot. He wrote a little note. It was hard to get in this school. But no, he just writes a note and all doors open to you. And when the door opened, because this was a very intimidating building that looked, as she thought, like a prison, she saw the friendly face of the mother superior, Mother Saint Sophie, who looked smiley and happy and Sarah was inspired to fling herself into Mother Sophie's arms. And for the next six years, Mère Saint-Sophie was kind of like her mother. And I can't help but think that she was the best mother figure that Sarah had in her youth, which is a good one to have, I think, because she seems very sweet. Sarah even said that on um, seeing her, she thought that she had, quote, the sweetest and merriest face imaginable. Oh, that's lovely. So for the next six years, in addition to getting an academic education and excelling in geography and art, not so much in classes that she didn't enjoy, but she also learned a bit about controlling her temper and expanding her generous heart. She learned to behave. She learned to speak like an upper crust Parisienne. She had a garden plot that she grew things in. She collected lizards and snakes and bugs to feed the lizards and snakes. She just had this little, all these little pets. She had this um, early adoption of a really wackadoo menagerie. She later was able to add goats by virtue of their usefulness in producing milk. And then some trained blackbirds for reasons of aren't these cool? <laughs> um, and that's just the beginning. Oh, I assure you, it gets more extreme than that. But she became the ringleader of all of the mischief that happened in the school. And as she tells it, this was when she first became, and I quote, a true personality. I'm not going to argue that. Yeah. Now, this is a convent school. She's getting a religious training to become a Catholic. When one of her pets died, she would take all those kids and organize a full-on Catholic burial for this animal and lead it and lead this long prayer for them all. And although she was Jewish by heritage, her mother was Dutch Jewish, she was baptized. Her mother was all on board for this. When she was 12, she was baptized, but she wasn't alone her sisters, plural, were also baptized, Jeanne, who was five at the time, and her new baby sister, Regine, also baptized Catholic. Which is very late because Catholic babies are usually baptized as right. babies. Right. And then she took First Communion and was confirmed shortly thereafter. So she is full on practicing Catholic at this point. She did develop sort of a 
religious fervor. She had gone from one extreme to the other. Her imagination sort of ran a little wild and at times tended to go into emotional and physical breakdown. She's a turned up version of Anne of Green Gables, I think, Mm. where she let her imagination carry her away. She was found a couple of times sleeping on the cold floor of the chapel, Mm -hmm. having collapsed in a religious ecstasy or something self-induced. Yeah, she's an interesting character. Well, she said that she wanted to become a nun, that that was her life path. She was going to become a nun. And Mère Saint-Sophie kind of kindly and lovingly laughed at her and said, that's so not the path for you, my dear. Not going to happen. Right. She just didn't have the right temperament. And it was pretty clear. Yeah. The school had a play and a big one was the one where the archbishop was going to come. Sarah wanted the lead role so bad, but she didn't get it. She wanted to be the angel Raphael, but somebody else was cast in it. So she decided to help her friend learn her lines and learn all the lines of everyone in the play. And when the friend was so overcome with fear that she couldn't do the part, Sarah knew all the lines and was able to go on as the angel Raphael. Tricky. I don't think it was tricky. I think it was really smart, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no. Yeah. I think it's important that she knew to memorize the entire play, not just the one role that she wanted, but she knew everything. She could have filled in for any of those kids. Well, now what? You're not going to be a nun. I'll tell you that, said her mother. And against her will, she was, at 14, extracted from the convent. You've learned to become a lady. Your Jewish background has been sufficiently pasted over. This is enough. Well, now what, though? Well, in France at that time, 15 was the legal age for girls to marry. She'd better just get her feet under a husband's table. You know, obviously, high society men knew whose daughter she was. So we can't shop there for a husband, but surely some wealthy merchant or lawyer might take her on. Also, her sulky face doesn't match up to my desired lifestyle, and I wish that she would just get out of my house. Yeah, and and isn't that sad? Because this is the first time in her life she's really living in the home with her mother and her two sisters, and it's just more emotional turmoil. Now, I will say Yule did get some tutors for her. She gave her drawing lessons and piano, which Sarah hated. She did hire a former tutor of the Russian Grand Duchess to, quote, finish Sarah's education. Sarah also befriended the upstairs neighbor named Madame Gerard. And again, here's another woman who is more than a mother than her actual mother, who welcomed Sarah into her apartment and played games with her and talked with her and thought that Sarah was witty and charming and intelligent and just lovingly encouraged Sarah. So of course, Sarah spent a lot of time there, wouldn't you? Well, Madame Gerard became... Not only the substitute mother, but her best friend. She was closer than Sarah's family for over 40 years. That's a four zero. And Sarah later wrote, Our family, which is decided for us, scarcely matters. Only the people we love count. And above all, the family we create for ourselves. God, I love that so much. And it must have been such a contrast for Sarah at the time because Mama Yule was a doting mother, but not to Sarah and not to Regine, but to Jeanne. She was just giving her all the attention that both of the other girls really wanted. I'm so glad that she had Madame Garrard. 
One day, Sarah was told to come down to this council of war. <laughs> Okie doke. Put on the nice dress. Go into a room that looks like an intervention. Ugh. Okay. What are we going to do? Are you going to get married? We need to make some decisions here. Blah, blah, blah. Well, Papa gave me a dowry. Evidently, somebody left her a sum of money to use when she got married. Well, I want to marry God. Why don't you let me become a nun? And after a while, the Duc de Moray sitting in the room is super bored by this battle. I've had it. Are we not going to dinner or what? And he finally just suggests they instead try to get this dramatic child into the conservatoire, the acting school attached to the famous Comédie Française, the state-sponsored official theater. Sarah had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. So the whole group just piles into the carriage and heads out to the theater that night to sit in Alexander Dumas's box and watch a play by Moliere. And boom, Sarah is drawn by supernatural forces to the idea of life on the stage. The spirit of the theater, the atmosphere of the stage touched her heart and she began in the box in public to weep. To which Mama said in French, like, son of a beat, you know, she's not happy. <laughs> like, why are you so embarrassing? That was Mama's response to this ground shaking world altering event for her daughter. Well, Sarah agreed to go ahead and audition. And maybe the panel of judges was impressed by Sarah's voice and her emotional state and her creative movement. Sarah certainly thought so. <laughs> but the president of the conservatoire during her audition wrote a note on a piece of paper, papier, and passed it down to the other judges. Ah, and it said, in no uncertain terms, the Duke de Moray, the emperor's brother, had explained to them that his protege was to be admitted. Yes, sir. Yes, of course. No problem. We'll handle that for you. Sarah got one of the very few places available out of the wide pool of applicants. Call ma'am. <laughs> there was between 100 and 200 people that had applied for 20 positions, and she was one of them to get it. Okay, he got her in there, but she's going to have to do the work to stay, right? Let me just describe 16-year-old Sarah Bernhardt. She's about 5'3". She is extremely thin. She has kinky, curly, thick red hair. And quite honestly, at this age, I think she kind of looks like Anna Kendrick, you know, the actress. There's something about her face. Later on, I think she looks like Shirley MacLaine as she gets older. Yep, at yep. this age, she just looks like Anna Kendrick to me. There is a series of photos that were taken at about this time where she's wearing what looks like a curtain around her shoulders. Very famous photos of her. They look very contemporary. Her hair is loose, curls, and very glossy. It's dark, which I don't know how they lit it that way, but she isn't conventionally beautiful, even for the time, but her personality is very quirky and dramatic and her family really isn't very conventional. So I think that life in the theater is a really good place for her. The Duke was right, as far as I'm concerned. However, at the conservatoire, the students were taught in a very regimented style. One moves like this to express fear, like this for joy. Certain characters move and turn their faces in certain ways. You can see remnants of this classic teaching in early silent movies. 
And I thought I said this when we were talking about Mary Pickford, how there literally were no movie coaches because they were all theater teachers. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the silent film acting is a little bit too dramatic for the Mm -hmm. close-up action of a camera. And I think we're kind of seeing the the last of the old extreme regimenting in the actual theater schools, too. Because as theaters evolved, they became more naturalistic in their technique. Mm-hmm. So it was their way or the highway, as far as they were concerned. But little did they know that they were up against the immovable force of Sarah's own highway. <laughs> L-O-L-O-L. Her instructors called her, quote, turbulent. <laughs> which was probably the best they could come up with. Her energy and just imagination ran up against the rules. She would rather stand up in front of the class for two hours performing a scene in 20, quote, wrong ways rather than do it one time the way that they insisted it be done. Yeah. You can see how that would be extremely frustrating for a teacher, but also some of them were intrigued and also repelled, but intrigued. (laughs) Well, she knew her strengths. Even at this young age, she knew who she was. She described herself as having grace, charm, distinction, beauty, mystery, piquancy, and a combative ego that permitted no argument. So she kind of struggled to succeed under this regime and received lackluster progress reports. She was supposed to be moving on to the big leagues, to the Comédie Française, which is, after all, attached to this school, but it was not very probable. Um, Once you were into the Comédie Française, that was technically a lifetime appointment, and it was a very respectable theater company, and here she was probably not going to make it. And her mama said she was a disgrace. Like, what was even the point of all that? Mama's friend chipped in. Well, you were a failure. Why even go to the theater anymore? Also, you're pretty ugly. But a note came in the night, slipped under the door, and delivered to Sarah by her supportive Madame Gerard. The Duke de Moray had been to pay a call on his close personal friend, the director of the two official state theaters. And hey, presto, she showed her the note. Your acceptance into the Comédie Française confirmed dash M. The formal letter came in the morning. (laughs) Do you think the Duc de Moray was her father? Do I think the Duc de Moray? Certainly possible. Even if he wasn't her father, he was certainly her fairy godfather. Well, and given this family, that's probably better. I would think so. Yes. So Sarah is admitted to the ranks of the, well, the lower ranks. (laughs) Of the classic theater in which she acted like a classic or any of you theater majors, I assure you, as one, I feel like I can out us in this regard, (laughs) always breaking into quotes from our movies or there's random singing and dancing, you know, you all did it in the hallway, larks and hijinks. It's kind of a, a language that only the other theater majors know. It was kind of fun from the viewpoint of the young ones. I think the older ones looked down their nose at this activity, however. Meanwhile, Mama is introducing her to prominent men. Why? Yikes. Well, I know why. But Sarah found her own protector, for better or worse, and under pressure. Either at a dinner party or at the stage door, the stories vary. She attracted a rich nobleman named Le Comte de Caratry, age 32, 
who showered her with gifts of money, to which Sarah came home, put the money on the table, and said, I hope you're satisfied, to which Mama rented a larger apartment. On August 11th, 1862, 17-year-old Sarah made her professional stage debut at the Comédie Française. She had stared at that poster outside the theater. She said, I have no idea how long I stood there, fascinated by my own name. It seemed as though every passerby who stopped knew who I was. I felt myself blushing to the roots of my hair. I always like when people that are on TV shows get gobsmacked by their advertisement in Times Square. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing, like where they post Instagram pictures of themselves as a selfie in front of this giant poster of them like, I can't believe it. Yeah. (laughs) I would do that, wouldn't you? Um, yeah. I totally would. Oh, yeah. We took our pictures with the outside of the A&E building. That's right. We did. Those are good pictures of us, too, I have to say. Those are really I love good. that purple velvet jacket. Yeah, you look, you look great in that. Again, as she's standing in the wings, waiting to go on, waiting for her cue, she said that the blood rushed to my ears and I could hear nothing. She was having another case of stage fright. Somebody in the wings said, merde, and just pushed her onto the stage. After the very first act, she ran to her dressing room and ripped off her costume, except there were still four more acts to go. (laughs) So she had to get it all back in. And when the reviews came in, they were not great. One reviewer said she was a tall, attractive woman with a slender waist and a most pleasing face. The upper part of her face is particularly remarkably beautiful. She carries herself well and pronounces her words with perfect clarity. And that is all that can be said for the moment. That was it. Uh, The funny thing is they called her tall when in fact, I think she was just thin because that in an era of padded voluptuousness Mm -hmm. (laughs) was uh, fashionable. Her thinness probably gave the illusion of height. Yes. And she actually talks about this later in her life when she's writing a book about being on the stage, about how important proportions are to making somebody appear taller than they are. And I think that's what she had going for her. If she had had a shorter neck, she wouldn't have been as successful, she thought, on the stage. She did, after this, ask her one of her teachers how she did. And he said, well, I can forgive you and you'll eventually forgive yourself. But Racine in his grave never will. So Ooh, That's not good review. No, no, not at all. And of course, her mother had nothing nice to say because she's reading these reviews. And she said, see, the whole world calls you stupid. And the whole world knows that you're my daughter. Gosh, nobody has made me sigh as much as this mother. I can't. Maybe it's because I'm a mom. I can't imagine talking to my kids this way. I can't remember if Clara Bow's mom was this horrible or was it Louise Brooks? Somebody's mother was also a piece of this kind of work. And I can't remember. I think it was another show business. Yeah, I want to say Louise Brooks' mother was not. She was a little all over the place. Like once a time she'd be encouraging and then the next she'd be awful. Once upon a time, during a major theater event, this theater always celebrated Moliere's birthday. It's just a thing. It's a tradition. Everyone who is anyone in the theater is there. A senior actress pushed Sarah's baby sister for stepping on the train of her dress. 
making her crash into a piece of scenery and causing blood to emerge on her face. And of course, the child started to cry. Sarah saw her bleeding and went to slap the famous actress on both cheeks and said to her face, you miserable bee. But she didn't say bee. <laughs> ooh, said everyone on stage, fired. Also, ooh, the toast of scandalous society, because lots of people have wanted to do that, and nobody has ever had the nerve <laughs> to do that. People sure knew Sarah's name now for all the good it did. Yes, and all of us do not know Madame Natalie's name. Like, who is she? She's I wasn't even going to say her name. I know. <laughs> How about that? I was going to erase her from her own story. <laughs> who lives I didn't and dies, know. who tells the story. <laughs> Should not sing. Right. So, as predicted, Sarah was indeed let go. But another friend of the family was able to get her a spot with a lesser-known theater. She was with them for about a year, stuck into some minor roles, and with as much enthusiasm and encouragement from her mother as before, who said, you are ridiculous. I was very upset. <laughs> Excellent reviews. And after about a year of this, Sarah grabbed a maid and ran off to Spain. Like you do. <laughs> and the story is a little fuzzy, as many of these stories are. Somehow she encountered, perhaps at a masked ball, perhaps saving her honor when she was insulted. Um, we don't know. She encountered one Belgian prince named the Prince de Ligne, um, who could have been nothing more than a giant opportunist, but he did give her the greatest gift, her son, named Maurice after her own grandfather. So Sarah Bernhardt has a dependent named Maurice now. In addition, she also received the charge of her now nine-year-old sister, Regine. Take her away, said her mother. She's unbearable. Not cool. Luckily, mm -mm. Sarah had inherited a sum of money from her grandmama and was able to set up her own establishment, but... She had to enter the family business. For a couple of years, she gathered about her noblemen, ambassadors, politicians, writers, titans of industry, and called them her menagerie. It's funny, she said, if I left, I think they would still be friends and meet on their own without me. So they were all good friends <laughs> and also her boyfriends. I don't even know how that worked. Everyone was happy. Well, Sarah wanted a good life for her son. She wanted a respectable life for her son. And she approached that same old family friend who had gotten her into the comedy Francaise in the first place, who really genuinely liked her and wanted to see what he could do. And he worked something out and told her, you can't go slapping any more people. <laughs> okay, check. I've had to swear on my mother that you'll be gentle. Because everyone knows you're hard to control. And she promised. And he got her a meeting with the directors of the Odeon Theater. 
they did a lot more contemporary plays and they were a more flexible theater company. It might have been a better fit. Well, the first meeting with one of the directors was very auspicious. And I quote, there stood the most adorable creature imaginable, Sarah Bernhardt, in all the glory of her youth. She wasn't just pretty. She was more dangerous than that. I felt that I was face to face with a marvelously gifted creature of rare intelligence and limitless energy and willpower hidden behind her delicate appearance. She was everything that was entrancing and seductive as a woman. Artistry emanated from her entire being. All she needed was to be started off in the right direction and be exposed to the public. As for her voice, it was pure as crystal. It went straight to the heart, like heavenly music. So here's a fan. <laughs> and then she met the other partner. <laughs> who was not a fan, which is probably good for business to have people who think differently. Yeah. But Sarah was offered a contract for 150 francs a month, which is about $2,000 in contemporary American money. Her first few plays, let's just call them shakedown cruises. She hasn't acted in a while. She was only okay. She was not great at all. And the manager that wasn't a fan was like, okay, she can go now. But the fan manager said, no, I think we need to keep her on for her full 90-day trial period. And he paid her salary so that he could keep her. Out of his own money, secretly, without telling her. I guess let's call it a bribe. <laughs> but soon she hit her stride with a string of hits. The critics praised her, and she had a gang of super fans that called themselves the Sarah Doters, who would follow her career in a very modern, obsessive way, I think. <laughs> she starred in the absolute hottest play of the year called Le Passant, The Passersby. The first of many productions in which she'd play a man. It was called a trouser role, and it was the Hamilton of the day. She had gone from that girl that slapped someone to uh, maybe like Saucy Spice <laughs> to a group of fans to this command performance of this piece in front of Napoleon III. And then he gave her a command performance, shall I say? Or so the story goes. Wink, wink. <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to get that in there. <laughs> okay, yes. Well, there you go. There was a play that the Odeon wanted to present called Ré Blas. It was a Victor Hugo play, which now we're like, yes, that's great. But at the time, Victor Hugo, who was basically the defender of justice and the voice of the common man, had been exiled from France for about 15 years. And because this was a state theater, they were prohibited from putting this play on. They instead decided to put on a play by Alexander Dumas. Well, the students who supported Victor Hugo, these real radical, protesty kind of kids, all showed up at the theater that night screaming, we want Victor Hugo, we want Rue Blas. So Sarah goes center stage, looks at these kids that are just chanting and says, my dear friends, the students, you want to defend the cause of justice? Do you think you're encouraging justice by holding Alexander Dumas responsible for Victor Hugo's exile? And the kids are all like, no, ma'am, because these are her Sarah Batours. You know, these are her fans. This is her base. And they all just kind of sit back down in their seats. And 
very soon. They are cheering her. They are applauding. They are loving this presentation. So she just took command of this protest and sat them all down and said, be quiet. Watch this play, essentially. Yeah. Excuse me while I break this fourth wall to slap you down metaphorically, but in a nice way. That's right. In addition to her professional press, she became a tragic real-life heroine. Sarah was out to dinner with some stockholders, and that's what she called the members of her human menagerie, and word came that her apartment was in flames. She went home and saved the baby. She carried her Dutch grandmother, who had been staying with her, down the stairs to safety, and everything she owned was gone. Well, the French theater community rallied around and gave her a gala benefit performance to get her back on her feet. And back in the papers, she went from triumph to triumph, both on stage and off. World events had other ideas for Sarah. War broke out when Sarah was about 26. The Franco-Prussian War. You know war. What was it about? Mm -hmm. Mostly the unification (laughs) of Germany. Sorry. I'm just saying, like, too many people get all head up about too much, but... Mostly it was about the unification of Germany into one big country and objections to that. That's what it mostly was about. Sarah got her family evacuated to a neutral country and then set about her duties as she saw them. She wanted to use her intellect and her gift of energy for her country and for the public good. And she determined to open a military hospital. She got permission to use the shuttered up Odeon Theater for her project. And she lit up her network for supplies and manufacturers gave it up. Flour, chocolate, sheets, clothes, medical supplies. Volunteers came to empty the theater and set up beds everywhere. Sarah went to call on the new prefect, the main government official in charge of both law enforcement and security and supplies. And, oh, hello. I was expecting to meet a stranger. Instead, behind the desk is old Count Carratree, her very first stockholder from when she was 16. After a moment of shock, she said, I'm so glad it's you because you're going to give me everything I need. Big (laughs) smile. And he said, give me your order, madame. And then she's got barrels of wine and liquor, all medicinal. 30,000 eggs, that's a lot, tons and tons of valuable and rare supplies from butter to preserves to, I mean, just anything you can think of, he provided it. And on her way out, she said, and I love your coat. I'll take that too. He took it off and gave it to her. And scene. When the soldiers started coming in, she and her team put them wherever they would fit. She sent the worst on to a proper hospital. And then the weather got cold. They chopped up the seats for firewood. When food got low, sadly, they hit up the zoo for animals. But they did everything they could to keep this hospital running and keep her soldiers, as she called them, safe. Sarah never spared herself, dawn to dusk and then some, through the night, her own tireless lady of the lamp morale boosting, you know, (laughs) as well as physical care. She signed autographs if that's what was required. She took care of hundreds of wounded. 
Now, as the Germans advanced, she supervised a mass evacuation. That's the only way to put it. She um, dispersed her patients all over the city because the theater was thought to be a very attractive target for the Germans. And so it was no longer safe to have wounded men um, housed there. She even rented a large apartment and moved some of the soldiers to that so she could take care of them. France signed an armistice deal after humiliating losses, has to be said. Sarah was by this time just broken and exhausted, but happy, happy that she had really accomplished what she set out to do. And she did incur the gratitude of hundreds of men and their families and public acclaim for her work. She didn't have to do any of that. She could have gone to Holland with her family. Oh, but were they in Holland where she had told them to go, where she had literally done battle at the train station to get them fitted into a train? Oh, no. Her mother and her aunt. This reminds me of Camp Beverly Hills. We found somewhere that's kind of more to our taste. And they had peace outed of the neutral country and were swanning around in a German spa town. Read the enemy of France, her family, her prominent family was prominently waltzing around in an enemy town. Unacceptable. Also not good for her reputation because, you know, she was of that extraction. She was infuriated and she set off to fetch them with a servant and a gun and not much else. She has barely made it back when there was a civil uprising in Paris. The working class, who had suffered greatly both before and during the war, staged an insurgency in Paris. And for two months, they laid waste to the city, executed enemies, set fire to public buildings, took hostages, setting bombs. Sarah and her family had to flee again. This was the communards, not the cool 80s band that sang, Don't leave me this way. No. <laughs> Not them. During the suppression of the communards, 18,000 Parisians were killed. The 25,000 communards were jailed and there were mass deportations. When she came back to the city she loved, she looked about and said, What ruins and bitter mourning surrounded me when I returned? Well, the Odeon reopened and her star once again began to glow the most brightly of any constellation in France. However, she said, I was awaiting the event which was to consecrate me a star. I did not quite know what I was expecting, but I knew that my Messiah had to come. And it was the greatest poet of the century who was to place on my head the crown of the elect. Victor Hugo was back. And the Odeon was finally able to stage a production of Ri Blas. Before it happened, Sarah had never met him and she was kind of intimidated by him. He asked her to come to his house for the first reading of the play, which isn't how things are done. She was not comfortable with this at all. She wanted the first reading to be at the theater like it always is, which is kind of ironic for someone who's always breaking the rules. But I digress. She had been cast as the queen in this play, so she wrote him a note that said, Monsieur, the queen has taken a chill, and her lady-in-waiting forbids her to go out. To which he just replied, I am your servant, madame. We probably know him best, Victor Hugo, as the writer of The Hunchback of Notre Dame or 
Les Mis, which actually is not about the communards, but just goes to show you history repeats itself. Oh my. Sarah Bernhardt starred in this play about mistaken identity and royalty. The main character pretended to be a nobleman. The queen falls in love with him. Discovery. Betrayal. On opening night, after a triumphant performance, she saw the crowd parting, and he's at the other end. He dropped to one knee and kissed her hand as she approached. Thank you, he said. I thank you. That was quite a uh, party in her dressing room afterwards. Even our friend, the Prince of Wales, Prince Tum Tum, Bertie, was actually there. See episode 10. I mean, these are not like just, you know, stage people. These are like royalty. Victor Hugo is literary royalty. The Prince of Wales, actual royalty. literally royalty. (laughs) Well done. Excellent. Excellent. I thought that's where you were going. I'm sorry. I wasn't. I regret that I was not. That was brilliant. So Sarah was literally catapulted into the strata of superstardom right here. This is like the transition period. She was also catapulted into a very close relationship with Victor Hugo. At this point, he's 70 and she's about 27. So yay for both of them. What is age when such geniuses collide, Susan? I know. Oh, no kidding. (laughs) Sarah and Victor Hugo would have a great working relationship also. She would star in a number of his plays. One of her most famous roles was as a character named Doña Sol. After her first performance as Doña Sol, Victor Hugo sent her a letter that said at the end, I wept a tear which you drew from me. It belongs to you. I place it at your feet. And that tear was a pear-shaped diamond hanging from a golden bracelet. So they had a great relationship, I guess. She is showered with jewels from all and sundry, but that one seems to have a sentimental note to it mm-hmm. that others did not. They furnished her apartment, these men did. They bought her all kinds of stuff. They bought her a coffin <laughs> at her request. They all clubbed together and bought her one because she thought it was funny and kept it in her house. The Comédie Française begged her to come back to them. That must have been satisfying. Don't you love that? Like you quit a job and they like discover, oh no, we really needed you. And you can just be like, via con Diablo. Mm. Well, she did go back for a lot of money. (laughs) A lot of money. That's another way, you know, to handle that. And to which the newspapers said the following, poetry has entered the domain of dramatic art. Or as some other newspaper put it, the wolf has now entered the sheepfold. (laughs) There was a little tension with the old guards who remembered her from the old days. They tried to keep her in her place, but you know, her place was now at the top. She's a fan of geography and this is a whole new geography. She once said in rehearsal, I'm fed up and yawned, to which one of the senior actresses said, remember, my dear, you're no longer at the Odeon, to which Sarah said, oh, yes, and curtsied and said, there, I would have said, I don't give a shit. <laughs> a merd is actually how I wrote it. <laughs> Here at the Comédie Française, her opening salvo was in a play that didn't really suit her. Her mama was in the audience and, of course, gave her stage fright and got up and left during the first act, which broke her confidence. 
Also, the director of this theater was literally sleeping with a rival actress in the company and made it very hard for her. He forced her into an uncomfortable zone, which triggered both her rebellion and her fire. So she was partnered with an actor with whom she had actual professional chemistry and etc. Chemistry, we know the deal right now, <laughs> which led to reviews like this. I think this was a spite glorious performance. To hear the words spoken from the mouth of Bernhardt, to watch the culminating horror of crime and remorse, of jealousy, of rage, of desire, all the dark forces of destiny crowd down upon that great spirit. All hell opens and the terrific urn of Minos thunders and crashes to the ground. That indeed is come close to immortality, to plunge shuddering through infinite abysses and to look, if only for a moment, upon eternal light. They like her. They really, really like her. <laughs> you know, others said things more simply. She was nature itself. She was a soul on fire. Those who saw her were forever transformed. Take that, theater director, and put it in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> I like that she had all these little passive aggressive ways to get back at him when his favorite actress was cast in a lead role. Sarah would go out of her way to upstage that actress at every turn. I, I know that's not cool in the theater, but I don't know. I'm kind of cheering for her in that regard because I'm a fan now. <laughs> I know. I kind of was like, mm, mm, mm. yeah. <laughs> well, her relationship on a happier note with her acting partner, the one that created transformative experiences for the audience was kind of the press's, um, what is the OG? Benefer, right? Yeah. And the press said, what could these two possibly have to do with convention? These princes of the unconventional, these tigers grooming themselves and yawning before the entire world. Ooh, saucy. <laughs> this guy, though, wanted monogamy. And that's not how my household works. La, 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 la. <laughs> There are letters that you can read between them, and they're very spicy. But she's completely clear, like, look, this is where I am. This is who I am. I am never going to be that wife material that you're looking for. I love you. We have a lot of fun together. I trust you. You're my friend. But I can't be the person that you want me to be. And he's still, he proposes like three times to her, regardless of that. He is a handsome fella. I'll give you that. I mean, a lot of times you see these guys and you're like, really? Hmm. Now, Victor Hugo also in his dotage, mm -hmm. quite fabulous, like Sean Connery level handsome. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But some of the other guys you're thinking, hmm, product of your time, maybe. I don't know. This guy don't kind know. of, don't take this. Oh, well, you can take this the right way. He kind of reminded me of your husband. Oh, you know, he, was, he does have the nice curly hair. Yeah, there's just something about him and the way he's carrying himself in the pictures. I don't know. He just looks strong and charming and, I don't know, just man about townish. I don't know the word. <laughs> I do really know that the ladies in the audience just didn't have a big enough fan. That's all I'm saying <laughs> about that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's all going well, or I don't even know. It's going. <laughs> It's going her way, but not his way. But back at home, her sister, Regine, 
was suffering. She was very ill with what turned out to be tuberculosis and had moved back in with Sarah. At this point, Regine, her life was not nearly as glamorous as Sarah's or even her mother's. She was working several levels down the career ladder from courtesan at the time. And when she moved in with Sarah, Sarah just went back into mother mode. It's the only way I can think of it. She gave up her bed for her sister and actually pulled out that coffin again. And she slept in it next to her sister's bed while she was ill. And the maid saw and just freaked out, ran screaming. And then, of course, what happened? All of Paris said, Sarah Bernhardt sleeps in a coffin, to which she said, all press is good press, and summoned a photographer. That's right. She described herself around this time as anxious, strange, and morbid. And this photo of her that was all over, I mean, it was on postcards, people bought it all over the city. She's laying in this coffin with her eyes closed, arms crossed across their chest, as if she were dead. There's flowers all around her. It's kind of creepy. I can see why it was so popular. Well, uh, unfortunately, Regine did die and her coffin was placed in the room next to Sarah's. And when the mortuary guys came to pick up the coffin, the coffin, they they saw the second one and thought, oh, crap. And they sent for more guys. I didn't know. I got to get another vehicle over here. Sarah was literally being carried out the door when she woke up. Pants were soiled that day. (laughs) Um, And legends were made. You can't buy press like that. That happened for free. In Sarah's free time, she had turned to another form of art, sculpting. Sarah rented a studio in Montmartre that ultimately became Picasso's studio. (sighs) It's a real art studio. She held court, you have to get the outfit together first, in a white pants suit with a ruffled shirt. Sarah became a live action trouser roll. Ooh la la. (laughs) The shoes she's wearing in that picture look exactly like the shoes I got married in. Oh. Yeah, they were really cute and I, they got lost in a move. I was crushed. That's all. (laughs) Well, you guys, her sculptures are something else. This is not a dilettante. She was self-taught and taught by her friends that were artists that she hung out with. This is real. Yeah, she would show and sell her sculptures alongside established sculptors. I mean, and they're really good. You and I saw one of those sculptures together. We did. We went to the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C., which is perhaps a lesser known museum, but well worth um, well worth hitting. At the time, there was a piece featuring Madam C.J. Walker that was made out of hair combs. Fabulous. Yeah, yeah, that was a great museum. I really enjoyed that. The piece we saw was called Opre la Tempête, After the Storm, which is an older woman cradling her son who had evidently drowned after having been caught in a net during a storm. It's very Renaissance looking. It looks like the Pieta. What we saw was a marble copy, an authorized copy. The OG, the one that she had made herself with her own two hands, was plaster and won a silver award at the Paris Salon that year. There are over 50 known sculptures of hers in the world. 
She took up painting as well, although she didn't have as much commercial success at it. So she didn't talk about it. I don't know how much she loved it, but I just wanted to throw out that it's not just acting and sculpting she's painting too. She's an all-around artist, an artiste. <laughs> she did a couple of drawings of a later house of hers that I thought were good. Mm-hmm. Well, the director of the theater, her adversary, hated hated this side gig of hers. It took attention off of the theater. It took her attention off of the theater. Well, then, Sunny Jim, what about this? <laughs> she <laughs> rode in an orange balloon called Orange Balloon, Hot Air Balloon, called the Donia Sol, the Lady Sun, and decided even though there were famous people giving tethered balloon rides, she was going to go on an even more dangerous untethered ride. And there she goes, taking off across Paris. And the director is walking and her friend goes, oh, there goes your star. And points at this bright orange monstrosity traveling a pace away from him. He basically movie villained his fist in the air and said, she'll pay for this. Meanwhile, Sarah and friends are celebrating in the air with foie gras and champagne. <laughs> she tossed flowers onto her sister's grave-ish as they flew over Père Lachaise Cemetery. That's a pretty famous cemetery. There's a lot of people there, isn't there? Yeah, it's really pretty. As a matter of fact, weirdly, I am going to have to give you pictures of this. There is a tombstone there that I only encountered by accident. Um, I think we had to divert because there's actually still funerals being held there. And we had to kind of go down a side road. And there is a grave of two French balloonists that went too high in the air. People didn't realize the oxygen got thinner, you know, and they became unconscious and died when nobody was monitoring the balloon and they crashed. And they're buried together in um, with effigies on top of, and they're there. So balloonists at Père Lachaise. Although I don't think they've died yet. Let me think. What year is this? <laughs> yeah. Maybe. This is about the same time. Weird. I'll have to show you a picture of that. I, it's kind of a shocking story. Well, everything is super yeah. fun until it's not. It started to storm. They got lost. They had to land in a random place. And surprised locals got to meet the biggest box office draw in the world in the middle of their field and give her a blanket, I guess, and a ride to the train station. <laughs> when she got back, the director fined her for leaving Paris without his permission, to which she said, I'll do as I please. Also, you're boring. I resign. You know, the basic bite me in my gluten-free fundament. <laughs> the Minister of Fine Arts, the number one government official in this category, told him to take it and her back. Like, no fine, just take her back. It's very important. She has one in your face. How about this for getting even more out of this balloon ride? The friend that she had taken on this trip with her was an artist, and she wrote a children's book based on this trip from the point of view of a chair that was lashed to the side of the basket with the artist's friend's illustrations in it. It's called In the Clouds, and it was an immediate bestseller, not a surprise. We will give you a link to the audiobook of this. It's amazing. They dedicated it to Monsieur Giffard, who was known not only for being the first person to run a powered dirigible, but he used to run those tethered giant 
tethered balloons to which 50 people or more could go up at the same time. I followed this rabbit hole. And if I was a person, even today, the jaded entertainment person I am, and I saw the like of this balloon being inflated, I would stand there with my mouth open too. It's amazing. It's amazing. He showed this big balloon at the Exposition Universelle, which was the same place where another thing you could see was the freaking head of the Statue of Liberty. I don't know how you would live right here and like not expire from sheer novelty and excitement. Those two <laughs> things seem amazing to me. You get a trip in your time machine. That would be a really good place to go. A good time period. It would be. I mean, just like... <sighs> That's really good. Sarah was the greatest actress in France at about 35, but she is about to capture the attention of other countries. While the Comédie Française was undergoing renovations, they had been booked for their first appearances in London. Right before they're going to leave, an American theatrical agent comes a-calling to Sarah and says, Bonjour, I am Mr. Jarrett. I can make your fortune if you would like to come to America. To which Sarah didn't have to give any thought, and she said, No, never. And then he spoke her language and said, how about making a small fortune while you're in London? Go on, monsieur. Sarah loved making money. She had a lavish lifestyle that she wanted to support, of course. When Sarah and Edward Jarrett decided to work together in London, he booked personal appearances for her, just for her, in parlors and drawing rooms where she could perform one woman, no prop, selections from her most popular plays. He was in charge of her pre-tour publicity, which he was very good at. And not this is not for the whole troupe. This is just for Sarah. And he was able to get crowds to send the ship off towards England with people screaming, Viva Sarah Bernhardt! And he was able to rile up crowds to greet her in London, including a man who was a friend of hers at the time, Oscar Wilde, who cheered her on and threw white lilies in her path. And it's just it's like this big circus, her rival in London. Who cares about the rest of the troupe? Sarah Bernhardt is here. Sarah Bernhardt. She was so surprised, was she, though, at her reception in London? Well, OK, she was surprised about this. She was entertained in some of the finest houses in the land. And she said, no society woman in Paris will have me in the house. And she was traveling quite openly with Maurice, who was 15 and is not like a baby you can stick in a drawer. He's there. <laughs> he's uh, loud and proud. And he traveled with her. And that really barred the doors to a lot of places in France, but not in England. Mm -mm. Her love affairs weren't secret either. It's as if her star power just obliterated the rules by which normal society operated, which is very thoroughly modern of her again. Oh, yeah. And I think she also is one of the first people who were able to use the press. And I think Edward Jarrett was instrumental in that. He was completely ruthless and he collected a bunch of reporters to interview her. Look, you can have a personal interview with Sarah Bernhardt. Come on. And they would ask her questions, but she didn't speak English. 
So he would translate. And when she would give them a snotty response, you know, what do you like in London? And she's like, I've only seen the train station in my house. He'd say, she just loves the beauty of London. She can't wait to see more of it and meet more of the beautiful people here. You know, he just laid it on thick and they ate it up. (laughs) What food do you like the best here? And he said, oatmeal. She's never even seen oatmeal. (laughs) That kind of thing. Well, the public was in raptures about her exotic appearance and her naturalistic performances. I think before they were used to a little more formulaic theater, you know, oh, but Papa, I don't want to marry him, you know, like where you sit there with your hands cupped in each other, you know, very properly. And she was not so stiff and threw her arms around and her hair flew and it was just amazing. One reporter called her smoke from a burning paper. We'll never want to miss a trick. Sarah held an art exhibition hosted by nobility, attended by thousands, in which she sold almost all of her artwork. And she used some of that money to buy a baby cheetah and a wolfhound, and some chameleons. And one of them, she got a silver chain for it so that she could pin it to her dress and wear this chameleon around. <laughs> I just love that so much. I don't well, know why. I'm sorry, madame. Are you happy to see me? Or is that a chameleon on your shoulder? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so wouldn't a chameleon poop down your shirt? Pardon me. I don't know what a chameleon... I mean, is it like rabbit poop? Or is there like slime running down your... Like a corsage of doom i don't know but you know what i bet she could just carry it off she could just like cover it with a silk scarf or something you know she's i I don't think she i don't think it would even phase her in the least she has a pet cheetah running around her house her rental house there in london i also think and this may be the wrong time period that at one point there were two giant tortoises that had been like jewels had been glued to their shells and they were just given free reign of the house yeah, that was the house that burnt down and they oh. perished. They perished. Oh, turtles. I mean, I they're know. not going to run down the stairs. I'll tell you that. That's no. a bummer. Oh, yeah. sorry. The French press back home, encouraged by her enemy director and the comedy Francaise, believe it or not, they back home painted her as a selfish traitor out for herself at the expense of her colleagues, i.e. the director's girlfriend, who couldn't hold the candle to Sarah or indeed hold the public's attention. Fair enough. Well, when she got home, the theater's treatment of her combined with the French public defying the theater and the press and committing to her that they still loved her drove her to stand up for herself. And finally, she told this director, you have gone too far. Kindly accept my resignation. And then she wrote, believe me. Like, this is not one of these fits of rage. I'm out. Just like when she was untethered from the ground in her great balloon adventure, now Sarah is untethered from a company and a theater where she never called the shots. 
She is paired with Edward Jarrett, who is handling all of the tour information, handling all of the publicity, the public relations, handling the press, keeping her name in the press, even though that name is often exaggerated. <laughs> There's stories going around that she has four children from four different men, including the Pope. She doesn't care. That's right. <laughs> including yeah. the Pope. So she doesn't care, and Edward doesn't care because there's no such thing as bad publicity. Although Sarah had said no, never to America, Edward Jarrett convinced her that that's where the money was. So he was beginning to set up an America tour. While the arrangements were being made for America, she knocked together a repertory company and went back to England. And the Comedy Francaise, realizing its giant mistake, sent a man to try to convince her to come back to them. But she gave him the finger and went to Copenhagen, where the King of Denmark gave her the Order of Merit. <laughs> like, I don't need ya. I'm moving on without ya. <laughs> I won't be back. On the way to America, she had quite another adventure, which intersects with one of our previous subjects. While she was on the deck of the Amerique, on her way to take charge of America, she wrote the following of her encounter. I met a lady dressed in black with a sad, resigned face. The sea looked gloomy and colorless, and there were no waves. Suddenly, a wild billow dashed so violently against our boat that we were both thrown down. I immediately clutched hold of the leg of one of the benches, but the unfortunate lady was flung forward, springing to my feet. With a bound, I was just in time to seize hold of her dress, and with the help of my maid and a sailor, we managed to prevent the poor woman from falling headfirst down the staircase." She was a trifle confused and thanked me in such a gentle, dreamy voice that my heart began to beat with emotion. You might have been killed, madame, down that horrible staircase. Yes, she answered with a sigh of regret, but it was not God's will. Well, they didn't recognize each other, but she introduced herself. I am the widow of President Lincoln. Sarah felt an enormous regret. I had just done this unhappy woman the only service I ought not to have done. I prevented this unhappy woman from joining her beloved husband, who had just been assassinated by Booth, the actor. True? Not true. Not sure. Dispassionate accounts do place Mary Lincoln on that very ship. That is actually not in debate. Other reports just have Mary Lincoln being held aside to make room for Sarah as she's landing in New York as and coming down the gangplank. So, you know, either that she saved her life or she just was pushed aside so that Sarah could leave <laughs> the boat. Well, yes, because Mary Lincoln, as we have discussed, was not really that popular after her husband's assassination for a while. And she was met by one relative at Dockside. Now, Sarah, on the other hand, was met with a modern journalistic blitz in New York. Her reputation had preceded her. Everyone wanted to see this person, this the four kids, including one with the Pope. I mean, they were so excited. They like, does she really have a cheetah? Does she really have a chameleon? Blah, blah, blah. You know, she did put on the razzle dazzle for her adoring public and everywhere she went, whether she was eagerly anticipated or denounced as immoral, she was a happening, indisputable. 
She in America became super famous for her death scenes. I don't know if she picked them on purpose, but six out of the eight pieces that she had in her repertoire featured tragic and emotive death scenes. And so that's what everyone started to focus on. I think she did. Well, she picked all of her own plays. She picked all the parts. The difference between the way Sarah Bernhardt died on stage and any other actress is imagine an actress dying on stage and just kind of gently laying down on the chaise longue, where Sarah would just go stiff and fall forward into the arms of her leading man or however. Her death was more natural and that it was so violent. You know, every death was jarring instead of this beautiful, graceful pass from life kind of thing that everybody else was doing. So yeah, I definitely think she picked plays where she got to die. <laughs> I don't that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Let me rephrase that. <laughs> I totally think she picked those plays because she was able to do those death scenes. Now she's getting a thousand dollars per performance. She's getting 50% of the ticket sales over $4,000. She's having all of her hotels and expenses paid. She has the salary of two maids, two cooks, and her beloved companion, Madame Gerard. She has a private train. And within that private train, she has her own private car. Other trains were diverted to side tracks to make way for her train if it was coming. Yeah. She got priority track usage everywhere she went. 50 cities she went to from Niagara Falls, where she climbed across ice flows for some reason. I don't know. Adventurous. To Leavenworth, Kansas, which seems like it would be too small to be of notice. She saw the wild, wild west. She spent seven months in America this first time. She earned the equivalent of $6 million. There were a lot of moving parts, and she gathered a burnished reputation for artistry and eccentricity. She is leaving audiences weeping and she's only speaking in French. She doesn't speak English. So she's doing these performances. People can't understand a word she's saying, yet they are so caught up in the emotion of it that they're sobbing and, you know, giving her all the accolades because she's such a great actress. I love that. She doesn't even speak English. Uh, I, you know what? We didn't even mention that. But I know. <laughs> You know, without speaking their language, she's just totally grabbing and manipulating people's emotions. That Yay. is a challenge. She is earning every penny of that $1,000, et cetera, a day. And she is earning all these accolades. There's a hype and you have to live up to it. And I think she did. Right. Well, and this is where, once she wrote them, this point right here is where she ended her memoirs. She said, I conclude these memories of mine here, for this is really the first halting place in my life, the real evolution of my physical and moral being. <laughs> okay. Well, there was never a volume two, so that's kind of a bummer, but that's as far as we get in her memoir. Which is probably enough lying for one book. <laughs> <laughs> embroidering, I thought we were going to Oh, okay. It. Sorry. Yes, embroidering. Sarah Bernhardt, embroiderer. She came back to Europe triumphant, where crowned heads presented her with jewels, compliments, and eternal friendship, including the ruler of Russia, where, unfortunately, our friend Sarah Bernhardt made a giant mistake. In the personage of one Aristides Domela, Greek aristocrat, very bad actor, and Sarah's sudden husband, 
what? I mean, after all this time, after all these dudes, why him? Why? Her son, Maurice, hated him. Her actor friends were just baffled. He was a gambler. He was a morphine addict. He was an anti-Semite. He called her a Jewess all the time. He was infuriated when people referred to him as Mr. Bernhardt. Hello, Desi Arnaz waving at you, <laughs> pointing at you, frankly. And he openly flaunted his mistresses at her. Um, seems like this is probably the least of her worries. However, they have made a commitment, which she never did before. You know, that old joke, like how to prevent premarital sex. Don't get married. Dun, da, da. Um, <laughs> but so she did throw him out eventually. It took a long time and a lot of embarrassing and very bad performances. And she supported him financially until his early death, to which everyone said, hallelujah. He was cold-blooded and cynical and just worthless, as far as her friends said. And Bram Stoker himself later told people that this man, Aristides Domela, was an inspiration for his character of Dracula. Well, her troubles were not over. A scandalous book was published, The Life of Sarah Barnum, by a former friend, now turned bitter enemy, comparing her to P.T. Barnum, all surface, no substance. And I think that our Sarah made the mistake of reacting to this insult publicly. Now, her son Maurice actually went over there and fought the male co-author in a duel. I can imagine that Sarah was actually emotionally hurt by this. The woman that wrote it, they went all the way back to the convent. They were both actresses together in Paris. She was one of Sarah's closest female confidants. So that had to really hurt her to have this book that it's very thinly veiled and it's probably closer to the truth than anything that Sarah had been saying. So I, I think she just felt betrayed. I'm not condoning violence, but I can see how Sarah would then go to this woman's house with a horsewhip, chase her around, and then slice everything in the apartment she could get her hands on. She totaled the woman's home. And that, of course, got into the press. It was not pretty. Now, from now on, uh, professionally, we could go into great detail, but we really won't. It's very confusing. There will be a pattern emerging in the background that of, oh, no, I need some cash. World tour, great acclaim, bounce back, home to France. You know, it wasn't just the money. She loved the novelty and excitement and uncertainty that was involved. And and she went everywhere. Like you could not mention an obscure part of the world without her saying, oh yes, I played there. It's got lovely fill in the blank. You know, <laughs> you know, she's mm -hmm. been everywhere. She's seen everyone. She's done it all. She is a global superstar at this point. Yes. Like the world has never seen before. Right. In 1890, at the age of 45, Sarah added yet another play to her repertoire, The Trial of Joan of Arc. At this point in her life, Sarah is now newly grandmothered. She is a grandmother to Maurice's first child, and she is playing this virgin young girl, Joan of Arc. 
During the trial scene, the Inquisitors would ask Joan how old she was, and Sarah would break that fourth wall, turn her head to the audience, and say, Dizneuf Alms. She's 45. They know she's 45. And she's saying she's 19. And people are loving it. They are just cracking up. Unfortunately, in the staging of this play, she is having to be on her knees quite a bit. I mean, just think of Joan of Arc, you know, on her knee, holding the flag. And her knees are starting to be injured because of it. She actually has to stop playing Joan for a while and start playing Cleopatra, where she just gets to, you know, lay around a bit <laughs> and not not hurt her knees as much. So that's I mean, there is age creeping in, even though she is convincing people that she's 19 years old. Moving on in time, fans of the show will be delighted to know that both her sculptures and also art of her by other artists were exhibited at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. <laughs> I think we can just check that off. Anyone alive yeah. during this time? Oh, hello. What day did you go? <laughs> her art was in the women's building. So that's Nice. I love that. We really need to look into the woman's building like as a episode or series or something. I don't know. Good idea. That same year, she took over at the Teatro de la Renaissance that she was both producer and director of for another six years. So maybe the modern equivalent of a famous TV actress directing episodes of her own show and doing props and makeup, and PR, and lighting, and hair, and costumes, and human resources, and, and, and. She's a busy, busy, busy lady. However, she enjoyed success after success in that theater, from Joan of Arc, to Cleopatra, to Queen Elizabeth. Lots of previous subjects of this podcast. <laughs> she even played Hamlet. She had had a translation of Hamlet created just for her because she thought that Hamlet was too dark and brooding and she wanted a more energetic and upbeat Hamlet. So she had Hamlet created for her and she played Hamlet. The role of Hamlet was extremely controversial. Now you can almost imagine what is happening. <laughs> People are, oh, oh, you're not content to just lay waste to all the female roles. You now have to compete with men. Um, you know, it's not that I prefer male roles. I prefer male minds. And you know, she's not wrong. There was more scope in male roles in that time period. More, I almost want to say more thoughtful and fully drawn characters. Mm -hmm. to which she could bring her imagination to bear. And so it wasn't just the trousers. For someone like Sarah Bernhardt, who always kind of wants to challenge herself, you know, playing a male, they move differently, you know, than women do. I love that she's adding these roles on as she's aging, even if they're younger people, the roles. Right. <laughs> so I think she's always trying to kind of push herself and keep things interesting, not just for the audience, but for Sarah, too. And she played Hamlet not only on the stage, but films are coming out. Silent movies are being created at this time. So she played Hamlet as the very first play to become a movie. She was the very first woman to play a role of a man on film because she was Hamlet. She took on a theater twice the size of the Renaissance and renamed it the Teatro Sarah Bernhardt, which played host for eight months to sold out crowds and the most successful opening night in French dramatic history with 27 curtain calls afterward. That's actually tiring to think about. 
Sarah Bernhardt Day was celebrated on December 9th, 1896, with a banquet of prominent playwrights, writers, actors, artists, politicians, and even an envoy from the President of France. 500 guests sat down to luncheon and then retreated to a sample performance of her work. And then Sarah was serenaded by the most prominent poets of her day. It was, in fact, a coronation. And every queen must have her castle. Have you seen that movie, Under the Tuscan Sun? Not the book. The different, but still good, movie starring Diane Lane. Sarah was on just a little trip, a little day trip, to the island of Belle Isle when she saw a fort. A fort. Oh, look how glorious and picturesque that is. With what? A for sale sign on it. (laughs) And she went and found a guy and bought it. Hooray! And also a neighboring manor house, because we're not all about being primitive right now. Um, (laughs) With a fluttering flag with the sentiment, calm them. She had that on everything. It was monogrammed on her things. It was painted on her furniture. She had that motto plastered everywhere. Just like someone might use their monogram, she used condemn everywhere. She hosted an almost unending series of invited guests. Sarah was a brilliant hostess, and I think she must have been an extraordinary extrovert because the sheer volume of activities and new people at the fort would have me hiding in the closet. I'm not joking. Well, she did build some extra houses on her land for her relatives, like go to your own house. (laughs) Um, But still, you know, amazing. Her autobiography was actually published and was a sales dynamo. People were interested. Dang. The real story, they said. Oh, we want this fire. LOL. Oh, LOL. The real story. No. Well, you got it. You got whatever it was. There it is. (laughs) (laughs) Guests used to joke when they were at her fort that you always had to hit the tennis ball right to her because she was not about all of that running around. But in actuality, she's been living with terrible, terrible pain in her knee. You know, over the course of her life, we've actually seen her throw herself in front of a carriage, break her kneecap, being Joan of Arc and hurting her knee. And once on a tour of South America, she was performing a dramatic death scene in which the character threw herself out the window to her death. Well, there's supposed to be a mattress on the floor and they hadn't put it in the right place. And so she leaping, thinking she's going to hit a soft surface, went straight on to the hard stage floor with her knee again. The same knee got injured very, very badly. And she was in so much pain and so much trouble that by 1915, she decided her quality of life would be better if someone would just cut that leg off entirely. That's extreme. Well, she couldn't walk anymore. She reached out to a former lover and friend, Dr. Pozzi, who she called Dr. Dieu, which means God. Please, won't you do it? Her son was objecting and she... She said, fine, I will just commit suicide. You pick. I don't care. Either one. It hurts that badly. I'm serious. And so he was convinced. Dr. Pozzi, though, delegated. You know that you shouldn't operate on your family. And he considered her to be family. And so he gave the responsibility for his dear friend's operation to one of his former interns, like the best student he'd ever had that was now, I mean, he wasn't a student anymore. He was fully qualified. Don't get me wrong and placed his dear friend in this man's hands. However, the last person to see her before she fell asleep was a female 
anesthesiologist, to whom she said, Mademoiselle, I am in your hands. And then she said, promise me you'll really put me to sleep. That was probably her real voice. (laughs) (laughs) Artist said one thing, person said the other thing. So the leg was removed. Immediately, the circumstance of her operation became fodder for the rumor mill. Evidently, P.T. Barnum, second reference to P.T. Barnum in the episode, offered her $10,000 for her leg. And she laughed. If you want the right one, you'll have to get in touch with my doctors. But if it's the left one, see my manager in New York. No, we do not have to bring reality into this, do we? But the sad fact is P.T. Barnum died 24 years before that leg came off. There we go again. Facts reckon up a good tall tale. By the way, no one knows what happened to that leg. I mean, it was dissected. The pathologist looked at it and they all determined, yep, that was the right decision. It was bad. It was turning rotten while it was still on Mm -hmm. her body. That's how bad it was. People thought they found it. How do you find a leg? It was preserved in a big jar at the University of Bordeaux, but that particular leg doesn't have a knee. And so ultimately they think that is not her leg that has been found at all. I think it was the wrong foot. I thought it was her left leg that the A left leg that they found when she had her right leg removed. Yeah, it was such joy. Mm. And then such like, "Eh." also, they were super embarrassed. Like, please don't look at us. Come on now. (laughs) <laughs> they didn't want any press around. They didn't want, they're like, whatever, whatever, whatever. Like, <laughs> But now if you Google where is Sarah Bernhardt's leg, guess what you see? Yeah. After she was healed up enough to start to become mobile again, she did try a wooden prosthetic with very little success. She hated it. So to get around, she had a white carved with gold trim sedan chair built Imagine a chair with two poles attached to the bottom with a man in front and a man behind carrying you everywhere you went. And that was her mode of transportation. (laughs) It's so fitting. I can't even stand it. And obviously, she still needed to make money. She still wanted to make money. She still wanted to perform. So she adapted all of her plays to accommodate for this disability. So she was able to play Cleopatra always horizontal. You know, she was always sitting or pivoting in her seat to act so that she was still able to do her work. She just worked around it. Within months of her recovery, war broke out. This is World War I, which we know a little more about than the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, usually. (laughs) Um, But again, She is in no shape to start another war hospital. And there were plenty of people hard at work in that endeavor. She thought this time that her talents lay more in morale boosting. And so to that effect, she went as close to the front as she was allowed to. And she recited pieces and performed to soldiers in such places as barns or in the middle of ruined smoking villages. And she traveled along with a young performer, currently with the Comédie Française, but not of the old days, so there was no bad blood, (laughs) Um, who wrote of this time of one performance, and I quote, The flimsy curtain fluttered open to reveal a wisp of an aging woman propped in a shabby armchair. And then... The wisp began her lines and the miracle took place. Sarah, old, mutilated, 
once more illuminated a crowd by the rays of her genius when she wound up her recitation, 2,000 men rose to their feet cheering. She is greater perhaps in this glowing twilight than in the sparkling days of yore. In addition to her work at the front, she also held benefit performances in Paris to help raise money for the war effort. And then she went global again and set off on what I'm calling her really, really not kidding final American tour to go back to America. Her purpose of touring the United States in 1916 was to try to convince America to come to the aid of France and its allies in the war. She was described as, and I quote, the head and heart of France by American journalists. And for whatever reason, it probably wasn't all Sarah Bernhardt. The United States did enter the war in 1917. She was very delighted. She returned to France, um, traveling through some German submarines, U-boats, and the captain offered to have two soldiers stand with her in case of torpedoes. What were they supposed to do? <laughs> anyway, she's like, no, it's fine. If the torpedoes come, don't sacrifice young people. They can just kill me. <laughs> but if the torpedo hit the boat, I don't know what, I don't know. I'm confused by that hole. <laughs> Thanks for the honor guard. They're not going to stop a torpedo. Right, right. She returned to France, to her home country, on Armistice Day in 1918. The war was over. What was not over was her career. She was in quite a few more movies than you think. It wasn't just a one-off. I mean, just throughout this latter period of her life, she just kept appearing. And she missed Mary Pickford at Famous Players by a year. So mm -hmm. she did the Queen Elizabeth movie, for famous players in 1912, and Mary Pickford signed with them in 1913. I don't know how many more former subjects we are going to be able to shoehorn into this episode. <laughs> she did continue to keep performing in 1921. She is 77 years old, and she's performing her really, really final London season. I mean, she did all these, my final American tour, you know, she must have done like seven of them. I keep thinking Kiss does that too. Oh, I think the Rolling Stones did that because I could swear I went to the, the Rolling Stones final American tour in 1989. <laughs> oh, I saw them in L.A. with Guns N' Roses. It was like a musical highlight of my life. <laughs> I once saw Flock of Seagulls, B.B. King and In Excess in the same concert for oh. $10. Whoa, where'd you do that? It's this festival they used to have um, downtown. What was it called? Spirit Fest. And each genre of music had a stage and I assume its own bookers. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't go to some of the stages because they didn't interest me. But those were the three that I thought, oh, I'm going to check this out. And like, that's who I saw. That was the best $10 I ever spent. Plus, I think you got drink tickets. Downtown Kansas City? Yeah. Right at wow. the World War One. Here's the tie-in. It was at the World War One <laughs> Museum grounds. <laughs> and we're back. That's all right. Oh, wait, I got one more. Okay. <laughs> okay. The year after that final, final London season, she performed at a benefit for Marie Curie's Institute of Radium. That's <laughs> Is this like a contest where whoever gets the last one wins? 
I don't know, but it's almost like we put all the subjects in a cup and we just pulled. I mean, we've had Marie Antoinette. We've had Marie Curie. We've had Mary Pickford. That's uh-huh. random. We had Mary Todd Lincoln. That's super random. Cleopatra, Joan of Arc. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth I. That's right. I don't know if there's any we missed. I don't Let know. Us know. Oh, ah, I didn't have it in my notes, but you know who is a huge fan of Sarah Bernhardt and saw her in Paris? Mark Twain. Oh, yeah, but Mark Twain, Mark Twain, wait a second. Let me find my Mark Twain quote. Mark Twain saw her in America in like 1912. And he said of Sarah Bernhardt, there are five kinds of actresses, bad actresses, fair actresses, good actresses, great actresses. And then there is Sarah Bernhardt. But no, Mark Twain wasn't one of our former subjects. But Loey Fuller was. And Loey Fuller and Sarah Bernhardt were in Paris at the same time. Both of them were at the Paris Exposition of 1900. I have no confirmation that they were pals. I do know that Loey saw Sarah's performances because she was a huge fan. Ha! Do I get the last one? I tell you, I think you win. I have been desperately trying to connect Sarah Bernhardt to any of the Harvey houses. But she had her own train and her own chef, and I just really can't pull it off. So I think you're the winner. During the latter part of her life, acting styles had really moved on. The reviews of her work were not as glorious as they once were. The younger generations really didn't see her as the premier actress anymore. Her reputation maybe was greater than her talent at this point, according to public taste. She was an icon, though. She was a symbol, and she was definitely a star. She was working till the very end. She was rehearsing for a play and filming a movie called The Fortune Teller during her last days. But it was kidney trouble that made it impossible for her to continue her work. As her health declined, crowds began to gather outside of her building, reporters among them. And upon learning of their presence among all the people waiting outside, Sarah laughed and said, I'll keep them dangling. They've tortured me my whole life. And now I'll torture them. And those were her last words. She died in her son's arms on March 26th, 1923. Sarah Bernhardt was 78 years old. When news of her death reached her theater, the lights went up, the curtain went down, and both the audience and the actors filed out in silence to go pay their final respects outside of her house. During her funeral procession, up to half a million people lined the streets. The procession paused outside of her theater for just a moment or two, then went on to her final resting place at Père Lachaise Cemetery. Her headstone simply reads, Sarah Bernhardt, 1844 to 1923. The Divine Sarah needed nothing else. I am bummed that I did not see her headstone when I was there. I saw a lot of other ones. Oh, yeah. Now we have to go back. (laughs) Oh, well, too bad. Gotta go back. Although I did make a pilgrimage to the grave of Mr. Parmentier and put a potato on there. I don't know what I'm thinking. (laughs) And now it's time for media. And as always, we will start with books. The big one that I used, the deeper dive, was The Divine Sarah, The Life of Sarah Bernhardt by Arthur Gold and Robert Fisdale. 
That was a thicker book. And then the thinner version is Sarah, The Life of Sarah Bernhardt by Robert Gottlieb. It was thinner. I got through it faster, but it hit all the high points. And that was a new book. It's well, that was a newer book. It was written in 2010. So that was the one that had the more marks in mind. Remember, we talked about that in the last episode. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, this is the one that had the most flags in it just because he hit all the high points. And then I went to the other books. Well, I loved Sarah Bernhardt by Elizabeth Silverthorne. In addition to, I had that last one. I didn't have the big one that you had. And then also uh, Sarah Bernhardt, The Divine and Dazzling Life of the World's First Superstar. By Catherine Reef. This is the most recent book that I read. It was came out in 2020. It is a middle grade book, maybe seventh and eighth grade. There are tons of photos. Um, it's written very conversationally. But just as a heads up and a little ears warning, you cannot tell the life of Sarah Bernhardt without talking about sex work. And that's in this book as well. So do with that information what you will. All right. And then there is a compilation biography called Seven Daughters of the Theater by Edward. Poor Edward. I don't know how to say your last name. Wagenknecht. I did the best I can. Um, and five of these women I actually do recognize, including Isadora Duncan, Marilyn Monroe, um, Sarah Bernhardt, Jenny Lynn, etc. But there are some I've never heard of. So it was interesting to read this. You know, I really liked it. It was history of the theater, really, from A to Z. And then there's a book that on the surface, since we didn't cover this at all, you'll think, what's the point? Well, if theater rivalries and perhaps bad behavior among divas is your jam, you should <laughs> check out Playing to the Gods, Sarah Bernhardt, Eleanor Deuce, and the Rivalry that Changed Acting Forever. Did it? I don't know. But it's an interesting book, and it goes into a little bit more of her um, mischievous personality and intercuts Eleonora Duse's life with Sarah Bernhardt's. So it's an interesting format and I loved it. We didn't go into the rivalry because I really didn't see that that was key to her development. Yeah, really. that's so funny because I read the same book and I was like, I don't know where to put this in. Now, Sarah did write books of her own. There is her autobiography, My Double Life, The Memoirs of Sarah Bernhardt. Uh, I listened to on Audible, The Art of the Theater. I have to say, this was so much fun to listen to because the narrator they got, I, I know she wasn't trying to do this, but she sounded just like Moira Rose, like her voice from <laughs> Shit Creek. And then the choice of words that Sarah had were so Moira, you know, those the baby and the theater, you know, it's just so funny. I, I was laughing listening to I know nothing about acting. I don't know anything more about it, but I really enjoyed listening to it. You know, we didn't mention this during the body of the show, but she was actually invited to teach at the Comédie Française. I want to say like 1906, just pulling mm -hmm. it out of my mind. And it, it was sort of unsuccessful. She just was herself and encouraged people to like behave in ways that the Comédie Française is like, yes, that would work for you. But for 99.99% of everyone here, <laughs> not going to translate. Um, thanks for the service. Goodbye. Yeah. So I also tried to listen to a novel that she wrote called The Idol of Paris. It is a fictionalized account of her early life, but as a different character. 
and with two very loving and supportive parents. I couldn't get very far into this. It was just too not good. <laughs> it was it was like goopy. Oh, it was. And it was. Yeah, no. She had her main character doing exactly the same things that Sarah had done, but as a an actual ingenue, you know, a wide-eyed and innocent young lady. Mm. Yeah, it was just peculiar. Well, there is a book for the film aficionado among you uh, called Seeing Sarah Bernhardt, Performance and Silent Film by Victoria Duckett. In particular... I was absolutely fascinated by um, chapter five called Sarah Bernhardt at Home. There's a movie that came out in 1915 called Sarah Bernhardt à Belle-Ile, and it is a documentary style coverage of her life on Belle-Ile, romanticized. Um, and it just goes into an analysis on why these scenes were chosen and what she was hoping to get from them and how Art Nouveau shaped the modern home and all kinds of rabbit holes that I loved. But it also goes into that much detail in other chapters on her other movies. So I really liked this a lot. Cool. It appears as though there's a new edition of In the Clouds, The Impressions of a Chair, the book she wrote after her balloon adventure. This one's translated by John Jolene Ross. It's illustrated by George Claren, who was the artist that was in the flight with Sarah. But I can't find a pre-order in America. So maybe it's just a European thing. It looks so cute. I really want to read it, but... So if you can't get your hands on that, you can, and we'll provide you with, uh, on listennotes.com, there is a podcast called From Stage to Page, and it's episode 40. They read the In the Clouds audiobook in its entirety. Yay. Although you don't get the benefit of the illustrations, Mm -hmm. which are marvelous. Yeah. So as to links, so I have, where is her leg? Oh, I have that one too. <laughs> then I have a link at the BBC.com um, to an article. Sarah Bernhardt, was she the first A-list actress? I believe so. Also, coverage of the women artists who exhibited at the World's Fair. And a treatise on racingnellybly.com about Giffard's balloon. And the photographs of it that impressed me so much, where he takes 50 passengers into the sky. A little bit of coverage over the Mary Lincoln story from her biography. And then in addition, the full details, if you want them, of both her operation and the pathology report that followed it. Excellent. I also have an article about historical women with disabilities, short entries. There were some that I had never heard of and many that I had. And as always, I strongly encourage you to go to the Jewish Women's Archives. They have an entry for Sarah, as well as many other Jewish women profiles on them. It's just a great resource. And it's just kind of a, I like it as just a rabbit hole site to go from one bio to another. And that's all I have for links. As far as museums go, you can go to Belle Isle. The Sarah Bernhardt Museum is in Belle Isle. Also, apparently Monet painted a lot of his work there. Not at Sarah's house, but on the island. I want to go now. (laughs) 
And also the National Museum of Women in Art in Washington, D.C. is worth a visit. And there is a sculpture that Sarah did of her husband after he died. And it's a funerary portrait and it's just his head. It's at the Met in New York City. And I will link you to a photograph of it. It's like, that's the thing she did of him. She did his head after he died. Okay. And then again, I do not know, due to the very poor indexing, if there has ever been a drunk history about Sarah Bernheim, to which I say, if not, why not? Which part would you pick? Um, I would pick the balloon adventure. Oh, yes. Excellent. And then intersperse that with jewel-covered tortoises and champagne-drinking alligators and lions that tear the carpets up and leave you (laughs) gifts of digested meat. (laughs) And boa constrictor who eats sofa cushions. These are actually things that she had. We didn't get to squeeze them into her actual tail, but there's so much to this woman that we just couldn't get to. Yeah, we didn't even talk about her fashion sense and the fact that other women had birds on their hats or flowers and she had someone stuff a bat. I know. And she wore designer clothes that were very expensive, but she had them made the way she wanted them made. So they were designer clothes, but she was kind of the designer. So like at the time where women were having like really cinched waist, she liked to put her belt hanging low on her hips for whatever reason. It was her look. Yep. So much we didn't get to. (laughs) Oh, and okay. Golly, there is so much that we didn't get to because she was a patroness of artists in other fields, too. As to jewelry, if you would like to see some Art Nouveau, Lalique was a very, very favorite designer of hers for jewelry. And some of the pieces she had were just exquisite. And he wasn't the only one that she patronized. I will find a website that can show you some of her other jewelry. Um, I'll just put them all on the Pinterest board. In fact, I'll give you a little bit of Lalique and also Alphonse Mucha. I don't know how to say his name. Mucha, yeah. the famous Art Nouveau painter that did a lot of her promotional posters. You will recognize his work, mm-hmm. but Sarah was the one that gave him his boost. Do you have anything else for links or museums or nope. anything? Okay. As for movies, there are several silent films that are on YouTube. We'll put a couple in the show notes so you can see her. Uh, One of the most famous and the one that I enjoyed the most is when she played Hamlet. And it was a dueling scene where she dies at the end. So you get to see her as a male character and fighting and dying. (laughs) Wow. All right. I know. All in one. I know. And there was a movie in 1976 called The Incredible Sarah with Glenda Jackson as Sarah Bernhardt. And I couldn't sit through the whole thing. I saw it on YouTube and I saw like five minutes and that's all I could tolerate. Right. Okay. So our story (laughs) is ripe for the telling again. Gosh, we are giving these people stuff, aren't we? It actually was nominated for an Oscar for Best Art Direction and Best Costume Design. And Glenda Jackson was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actress. I love their tagline. This is the tagline. One triumph, one man, one scandal was never enough when you were Sarah Bernhardt. 
<laughs> and it's rated PG, so I'm not quite sure how they did that. <laughs> a lot of um, fading focus and drapery. Yeah, the five minutes that I saw, she seemed very coquettish in like an innocent way that I don't believe Sarah was. Right. Yeah. And that's all I have. Let me leave you with a bit of advice that I need to take, frankly, in these days of stress and strain. This is a quote from Sarah Bernhardt herself. Life is short, even for those who live a long time, and we must live for the few who know and appreciate us, who judge and absolve us, and for whom we have the same affection and indulgence. We ought to hate very rarely, as it is too fatiguing. Remain indifferent a great deal, forgive often, and never forget. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends about us. Or if you're so inclined, leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people to find us. You can follow Assorted Rabbit Holes by going to the Pinterest board about Sarah Bernhardt. Would you like to learn more about Lalique jewelry or about the Franco-Prussian War of 1870? What are the chances? Or perhaps just see the star Sarah Bernhardt got in 1960, posthumously, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Head to our Pinterest account where there is a board for each and every subject. And I honestly think that's one of my favorite things associated with the show that I do. If you are a Twitter person, you can banter with Susan over on Twitter at the History Chicks with an X or join our Facebook community at the History Chicks without an X. Susan and I both appear, especially on episode eight of the History Channel show, The Machines That Built America, where we're talking about the dishwasher and the washing machine, and the refrigerator. So you can watch those shows, all of them, on the History Channel app, or if you get the History Channel, just search for The Machines That Built America. We're very excited about it. The music in the middle is Preludes Opus 28, number 11 in B major by Frédéric Chopin, and the song at the end is Cool Kids by Natalie Walker.